down at the cross where my Savior died. Down where for cleansing from sin I cried. There to my heart was the blood of life. Glory to His name. Glory to His name. Glory to His name. There to my heart was the blood of life. Glory to His name. I am the one dressed as a
you'd open your copy of God's Word this morning to Genesis chapter 33 as we continue looking at the life of Jacob. And we've got just a couple more messages and uh, we'll be done looking at his life. But um, I read this past week, while you're finding Genesis 33, I read this past week that someone said, if I had been named according to the life I have lived, my first name would be Ima. And my last name would be a mess. I'm a mess. Can you relate? Uh, doesn't that describe all of us at times? Uh, we try to get it together. We try to get going on something only to have it fall apart again. And we find that our man Jacob that we've been studying, he lives up to his name, doesn't he? Uh, Jacob having the meaning of supplanter or schemer or heel catcher or deceiver or has the idea of being a con man. But the last time we left him, he had just received a new name. The name Israel. Uh, a prince with God. Some believe it means uh, God's warrior. Or a God-mastered man. Or God rules. But he received a new name from Almighty God. And you remember, beloved, that I shared with you last time that in the Bible a new name signified a new start. Or a fresh beginning. Jacob didn't have to remain uh, being a con man. He could truly be blessed by God and uh, live out the name Israel. But the interesting thing is he's given that new name in Genesis chapter 32. And then when you come to the very next chapter, our chapter for today, and you look at the very first verse, what do you find him called? Jacob. He's called by his old name. Now, that's not just a coincidence because, you know, the Bible is the inspired word of God and God, the Holy Spirit, inspired human authors to write down what God wanted us to have. The very God breathed word of the living God. James Montgomery Boyce said this is significant. And in fact, from this point on in Genesis, Jacob is called Jacob twice as often as he's called Israel. He said in the Bible in Genesis, you know, when Abram's name was changed to Abraham, that's pretty much how he's referred to afterwards. Consistently, he's called Abraham. But in Genesis 33 through 50, we find Jacob being called Jacob 45 times. And he's only called Israel 23 times. And he said, apparently, there's still a lot of the old man in the new patriarch. Now, I don't know about you, beloved, but that encourages me. You say, well, preacher, why does that encourage you? That Jacob is still called Jacob instead of called Israel. Well, it encourages me because I find still a lot of the old me in the new me as well. In Christ, I'm a new, crea a new creature, a new creation. Old things have passed away. The old, old things have become new. But I find my old self, my old man, my flesh still waging war, seeking to have its will and its way in my life. Jot this reference down. Paul described it this way in Galatians 5, 16 and 17. I say then, walk in the Spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. For the lust of the flesh, or the flesh lust against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary to one another, so that you do not do the things that you wish. You know anything, Christian, about that battle raging within you? The flesh and the Spirit? Paul described it in Romans chapter 7, verses 14 through 25 this way. I want to read this to you 
from a paraphrase. I want to read it to you from the message. Jot it down. You can go back and read it in your copy of the Scripture later. Let me read it to you in Romans 7, 14-25 from the message and see if you can relate, child of God. Here's what Paul wrote. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, mind you, I can anticipate the response that is coming. I know all, that all God's commands are spiritual, but I'm not. Isn't this also your experience? Yes, I'm full of myself. After all, I've spent a long time in sin's prison. What I don't understand about myself is that I decide one way, but then I act another, doing things I absolutely despise. So if I can't be trusted to figure out what is best for myself and then do it, it becomes obvious that God's command is necessary, but I need something more. For I know the law, but still can't keep it. And if the power of sin within me keeps sabotaging my best intentions, I obviously need help. I realize that I don't have what it takes. I can will it, but I can't do it. I decide to do good, but I don't really do it. I decide not to do bad, but then I do it anyway. You ever lived there? Ever been there? My decisions, such as they are, don't result in actions. Something's gone wrong deep in within me and, and gets the better of me every time. It happens so regularly that it's predictable. The moment I decide to do good, sin is there to trip me up. I truly delight in God's commands. But it's pretty obvious that not all of me joins in that delight. Parts of me covertly rebel, and just when I least expect it, they take charge. I've tried everything, and nothing helps. I'm at the end of my rope. Is there no one who can do anything for me? Isn't that the real question? But listen to chapter 7, verse 25 of Romans. The answer, thank God, is that Jesus Christ can and does. He acted to set things right in this life of contradictions where I want to serve God with all of my heart and mind, but am pulled by the influence of sin to do something totally different. Beloved, what I just read there is the normal Christian life. There's a struggle going on. There's a struggle waging within us between the Spirit and the flesh. And as believers, we have a new name as well, but we don't always live up to our new name. We're Christians, but we don't always act like a Christian and talk like a Christian and walk like a Christian and live like a Christian and respond like a Christian. There are so many times we walk by sight rather than by faith. We can be so faithless. But beloved, our God is always faithful. And we see that in the picture. We see a picture of that in our passage today. Now, we're in Genesis 33. And I want, I want to tell you right away, I need you to really lean in and pay attention today. We're going to cover a lot of ground in a short amount of time. And I'm going to ask something very important of you. I'm going to ask you to think today. Now, I know that for some of you, you don't like that idea, but uh, I'm going to ask you to think. Now, you had an excuse last week to sleep and doze off because it's very early, but we're on a regular schedule today, so I want you to lean in real close, pay attention, and uh, if you start you know, dozing off, I'll get John to throw a hymn book down and we'll keep going, okay? All right. Now, before we read this account of Genesis 33, we're about to read about Jacob finally meeting Esau. This meeting's been coming for some time. This is his brother. I need you to remind you some things and let you know about some things we're about to read here in Genesis 33. Now, you remember, he hasn't seen Esau in 20 years. 
And the last time he saw Esau, Esau was not very happy with him. In fact, Esau wanted to do what? He wanted to kill him. He was so angry and, and so bitter and so filled with rage, he wanted to kill him. And now word has arrived to Jacob that Esau's headed his way and with him are 400 men. And you remember that Jacob goes to the Lord in prayer and then he gets up from saying amen. He begins to plot and scheme and figure out how to do all this. And then all of a sudden we find him wrestling with God and God wrestles with him and God uh, wrestles with him all night. And he gets a new name. He gets a new limp. He finally surrenders to God. And then right away in the very next chapter, he's called Jacob again. Now, here's the quandary. If you do what I did this past week, if you go back and you study this passage in depth, you go read the teachers and the preachers and the commentators and the scholars about Genesis chapter 33, you're going to find basically two camps or two, two schools of thought when it comes to Jacob here. The first group is kind of like this. They pretty much praise what Jacob does here. They excuse what he does. They explain it away and say, well, what he did here was wonderful. I mean, he did the right thing. Then there's another school of thought, another camp that thinks this way. Pretty much they say everything he did was rotten. Basically, he was Jacob all over again. He was scheming, conniving, doing what he could, acting in the flesh, and he had reverted back to Jacob. So who's right? Well, you know, it's really hard, isn't it, to discern a person's motives at times and to discern a person's heart and their actions. And we can very easily be mistaken. Haven't you had that in your own life where you've acted or done something and someone misunderstood you? I know it's happened to me before. And so sometimes it's very hard to, to discern people's motives and their actions and their hearts. And furthermore, there's so much we don't know. We're only giving 20 verses here in chapter 33, and we were not there. And so it's very difficult at times to discern. But I think it's unwise, listen, to go to one extreme or the other. So, preacher, which camp do you fall in? Neither. I think the truth lies somewhere in between. Jacob was not perfect. He was just learning to lean on the Lord. And I think you have a mixture here. At times he's, he's, he's walking by faith. At times he's walking by fear. And, and I think you have a mixture here in Jacob's life. Just like there's a mixture in our life. Because we sometimes walk by fear instead of faith. And we sometimes live in the flesh instead of walking by the Spirit. And so I say all that to kind of set the ground. And now I want us to read it. We're going to read all 20 verses, and then we'll talk about them. And I think you'll see the quandary as we read it. And you can, in your mind's eye, begin to kind of wrestle with that. Genesis 33, beginning at 1, verse 1. Now Jacob lifted his eyes and looked, and there Esau was coming. And with him were 400 men. So he divided the children among Leah, Rachel, and the two maidservants. And he put the maidservants and their children in front, Leah and her children behind, and Rachel and Joseph last. Then he crossed over before them and bowed himself to the ground seven times until he came near to his brother. But Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him. And they wept. Isn't that a beautiful picture there in verse 4 of these two brothers? Verse 5. And he lifted his eyes and saw the women and the children. This is Esau lifting his eyes and said, Who are these with you? So he said, Jacob said, the children whom God has graciously given your servant. Then the maidservants came near, they and their children, and bowed down. And Leah also came near with her children, and they bowed down. 
Afterward, Joseph and Rachel came near and they bowed down. Then Esau said, what do you mean by all this company which I met? You know, all these gifts. He sent all this livestock and all these gifts ahead of him. What do you mean by all that? And he said, these are to find favor in the sight of my Lord. Notice what he says in verse 9. But Esau said, I have enough, my brother. Keep what you have for yourself. Jacob said, no, please. If I have now found favor in your sight, then receive my present from my hand inasmuch as I have seen your face as though I have seen the face of God and you are pleased with me. Please take my blessing that is brought to you because God has dealt graciously with me and because I have enough. So he urged him and he took it. Then Esau said, let us take our journey. Let us go and I will go before you. But Jacob said to him, My Lord knows that the children are weak and the flocks and herds which are nursing are with me. And if the men should drive them hard one day, all the flock will die. Please let my Lord go on ahead before his servant. I will lead on slowly at a pace which the livestock that uh, goes before me uh, and the children are able to endure until I come to my Lord and steer. And Esau said, Well, now let me leave with you some of the people who are with me. But he said, What need is there? Let me find favor in the sight of my Lord. So Esau returned that day on his way to Seir, and Jacob journeyed to Succoth, built himself a house, and made booths for his livestock. Therefore, the name of the place is called Succoth. Then Jacob came safely to the city of Shechem, which is in the land of Canaan, when he came from Pandanaram, and he pitched his tent before the city. And he bought the parcel of land where he had pitched his tent for the children of Hamor, Shechem's father, for 100 pieces of money. And then he erected an altar there and called it El Elohi Israel. Now, there's a lot to take in in these 20 verses. There's a lot of disagreement about what his motives were and, and how is he acting here and what's behind all this. But I want to very quickly give you two outlines. Now, normally I only give you one. But I'm going to give you two today. No extra charge. I'm going to give you two outlines. The first one is a textual one. It's based upon the text. And the second one is my sermon outline. I'm going to give you the textual one first, and I'm going to give it to you fairly quickly. And here's why I want to give it to you. I want you to see the big picture. And I want to help you too, beyond just this morning, because I'm going to give you a textual outline. When you're reading the Bible for yourself, and you're studying through the Bible, you can do what I'm about to show you. All this is, is a quick outline about what's going on in this passage. Let me walk you through it real quickly. We find that Jacob's preparing to meet Esau in verses 1 through 3. You know, he's getting the family all settled and ready. In verse 4, Jacob meets Esau. In verses 5 through 7, uh, Jacob introduces his family to Esau. In verses 8 through 15, Jacob converses with Esau. They have conversations together. In verses 16 and 17, Jacob departs from Esau. In verses 18 and 19, Jacob settles in Shechem. And we could have put 20 there, but 20 seems significant to me. Jacob builds an altar in verse 20. So all we've done there is we've taken the text, the Scripture, and just kind of wrote out real quickly what's going on. Here's the big picture. And so that kind of summarizes those 20 verses. Just at the surface, that's what's going on. These two brothers have come together. They meet together. Family introductions, conversation, departing, and then Jacob settling uh, in Shechem and then building an altar in verse 20. All right, let me show you something else. I want to show you, and very quickly, and I told you, stay awake, stay alert. I want to give you some of the reasons people are wrestling and grappling with this passage. This gets even smaller because there's so many, so if you can see that, I'll read them. Here are the issues 
that people grapple with. First of all, the way he arranges his family. Did you see how he arranged his family? Remember, he had Leah, he had Rachel, and he had their maids. And he takes the maids first, they and their children, puts them out front. Then he takes Leah and her children, their second. And then at the very end, who does he put? His favorite wife, Rachel. His favorite son, Joseph. Benjamin's not been born yet. So these kids are still young at this point now, mind you. And he puts them there. And people wrestle and say, what in the world is he doing? Is he raiding his family? These are my least favorite. These are my next favorite. These are my most favorite. Some say, look at how awful that is. And by the way, later on we studied the life of Joseph, right? What happens in that family? There's so much jealousy over Joseph that those other brothers sell him into slavery. Maybe this is the seed of that. Then others say, no, he's not doing anything wrong. This is something honorable. and He's going to present them, you know, in that order. You know, here's the first group. Here's the second group. Here's the final group. Then there's the old idea about the gift that he gives to his brother. Was he right in giving this gift? Was he wrong in giving this gift? We already said his motive was to appease. We find him talking about the gifts. Then it was the way that he refused to join his brother. Did you notice there? Esau he says, hey, let's go on together. I'll lead you. Let's, let's go on, get on out of here. And Jacob says, no. He says, you know, my family's young. The flocks are young. And, uh, you, you know, you all, we, would, we would slow you down, basically. And uh, you just go on ahead. And many wonder, well, what about that? Didn't Esau have a bunch of flocks he'd just given him? Hmm. Then there's the idea about the promise that he made to meet Esau in Seir. He talked about uh, the fact that he would come to his Lord in Seir in verse 14. And some see that kind of as a promise. He says, basically, you go on ahead and I'll kind of meet you there. And so some say, well, he outright lied to him. Then there are others who say, no, he didn't lie to him. Um, he probably went later. This wasn't a promise right away. He probably made several trips to... I mean, I actually read this. He probably visited Esau and visited his father. I don't know how they got all that because I don't find it in the Scripture. Maybe he did, maybe he didn't. And, and then there's the whole fact of him not going all the way back to Bethel. You say, well, what's that all about? Well, we're not going to get into that today, but it's very significant when you find out what happens in the next chapter. And we'll talk more about that next time. Um... But, but I say all that, and you're like, well, what in the world are you talking about? I don't know. John, throw a handbook down now. Yeah, there we go. <laughs> what does this have to do with anything? I mean, well, we're, we're studying God's Word. God gave us this chapter. It's important. All Scriptures given by inspiration of God is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. The man of God may be perfect, that is mature. So why go over all that? Because we don't know the answer. We don't know, was he right? Was he wrong? Was he partially right? We don't know exactly his mind at this point. Why give us all that, preacher? Well, I said all that, and I shared all that for this reason, to say this, this is not the point. This isn't the point at all. And yet you'd be amazed how much time and energy and ink and paper has been spent on that. And there's nothing wrong with talking about that. We can talk about that and think about that. You can form your own opinions. But my whole point is this. This is not the point of the passage. The point of the passage is not to wrestle with Jacob's motives and his heart and what he did. In fact, the point of the passage is much more important. And the truth be known, I almost missed it. 
But then as I continue to think about this passage and look at it, the Lord graciously showed me something that could have been easily missed. And you say, well, preacher, what is that? The Lord showed me in this passage God himself. God himself. Did you notice God in this passage? Did you notice that this passage is all about God's faithfulness? Did you notice, beloved, did you remember that actually this passage of Scripture is actually an answer to prayer? This passage of Scripture is actually an answer to the prayer that Jacob made in the previous chapter, in chapter 32. And this is the answer to that prayer. Now, I promised you two outlines, right? You've got the first one. Now, let me start the second one, the sermon outline. I want you to notice God in this passage. Notice, first of all, in verse 5, God's blessings. It says that Esau lifted his eyes and saw the women and children and said, Who are these with you? So he said, that is Jacob said, now notice what he says, The children whom God has graciously given your servant. The children whom God has graciously given your servant. Now, whatever his motives here, whether he's walking in the flesh or in the spirit, by the flesh or by faith, I love the fact that he talks about God. When Jacob talks to his brother, he talks about God. And, of course, we have to remember what God promised to Jacob. You remember Jacob is the recipient of the Abrahamic covenant. Now, I told you, you got to think now. Don't go to sleep yet. He's the recipient of the Abrahamic covenant. And God had promised him some wonderful things. God had promised him provision and, and people, that is, descendants and presence and, and protection and a place, the land. In fact, jot these references down and listen again. Genesis 28. Here's what the Lord promised. We've already studied this, but listen to it again. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I'm the Lord God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and your descendants. Now, remember these passages we studied today. The land I'm going to give to you and your descendants. Also, your descendants shall be as the dust of the earth. You're going to have a lot of descendants. You shall spread abroad to the west, to the east, to the north, to the south. And in you and your seed, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. How's that? Because Jesus came through his family. Listen to what he says in verse 15. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land. Wow. For I will not leave you until I've done what I've spoken to you. And what we have in this passage in Genesis 33 is God being uh, very busy to keep his promise. To Jacob, because when Esau says, well, who are all these? Who are all these kids? Who are all these people? He says, these are the ones that God has graciously given me. God's kept his promise. He's given him descendants and the beginning of that seed, which shall be abundant. And so we see God's blessing. And he says to Esau, listen, God's given me this family. By the way, can I say to you, moms and dads, grandmas and grandpas, you could say the same thing today. Notice God's protection in verse 10. In verse 10, he says to Esau, Jacob does, I've seen your face as though I have seen the face of God and you were pleased with me. What does that mean? I've seen your face as I've seen the face of God. What does he mean by that? Well, I don't know if we can know it completely and totally, but I want to take a stab at it. I believe what Jacob means here is when he saw Esau's face, when he looks at the face of his brother, the last time he saw him, it was still with rage and anger and hatred. 
and murder. But when he looks at his face this time, he sees the face of God. In other words, he sees the work of God. Because Esau's face is no longer filled with rage and anger and bitterness and murder. Instead, it's filled with peace and tears of joy. Why? Because God had answered Jacob's prayer. Last chapter, chapter 32, verse 11. Here's what Jacob prayed. Deliver me, I pray, from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him, lest he come and attack me and the mother with the children. Do you see the fear? He's going to attack me and my family. And yet, what do we have here? We don't have attack. We have Esau embracing him and holding him and loving him and weeping together. And he's not being attacked. Instead, he brings his family and says, this is the family that God has given to me. See, this passage is about God and His faithfulness, His protection, His blessing. And, it, and it's God that had done it. God is the one that softened, that changed the heart of Esau toward his brother Jacob. I love what Alan Ross said. He said, reconciliation. Reconciliation is a work of grace to be sought by faith and acknowledged in praise. We don't have time to go into this. Maybe, maybe there's some reconciliation that needs to take place in your life or your family. Reconciliation is a work of grace to be sought by faith and acknowledged in praise. Take that matter to the Lord in prayer. We've got to hurry. God's blessing, God's protection, God's provision, verse 11. You know, uh, Jacob had given Esau a large gift. And Esau said, no, you keep what you have, I've got enough. You keep it, my brother. But then notice what Esau, or what Jacob said in verse 11. He constrains his brother to take him. Please take my blessing. By the way, it's an interesting word to use with his brother, isn't it? <clears throat> when you think about it. Please take my blessing that is brought to you. Notice this next part. Because God has dealt graciously with me and because I have enough. So he urged it and he took it. God has dealt graciously with me and I have enough. Interesting, both brothers said I have enough. How many people do you meet today that would say that? <laughs> I have enough. Don't you want this? No, I have enough. Don't you need this? No, I have enough. Don't you want to buy this? No, I have enough. But both these brothers say, I have enough. But uh, it's interesting, in the Hebrew, there's a subtle difference that you don't notice in the English. When Esau said, I have enough, he used a word, a Hebrew word that literally means here in the translation, the word literally means, I have much. I have much. But when Jacob said, I have enough in the Hebrew, it literally means everything. He says, I have everything. So Esau says, no, my brother, I have much. You keep your gift. And, and then Jacob says, no, my brother, you take the gift because I have everything. How could he say that? Because he had the Lord. God was his provider. Three times in the conversation, Esau, with Esau, Jacob brings God into the discussion. Three times he mentions God. Now fast forward the story. We don't have time to talk about the locations. We'll touch some upon some of that in a later study. But in the very last verse, he's in Shechem, he's in the land of Canaan. And in verse 20 it says, Then he erected an altar there and called it El Elohi Israel. And for my sermon outline, we're going to call this Jacob's response. Jacob's response. How does Jacob respond to the God who had blessed him, protected him, provided for him, brought him safely thus far? What does he do? He builds an altar and he worships him. He worships him. 
In this passage, mind you, he's been praising God all along, hadn't he? God has given me this family. God has given me these things. God has done this. He's been talking about God. But here we have in this passage, Jacob literally building an altar and worshiping the Lord. And the name of the altar is very interesting. It says he called the altar El Elohi Israel. There's a little bit of disagreement about exactly how it should be worded among the scholars. But here's the idea. He calls the altar God, the mighty God of Israel. God, the mighty God of Israel. Now, let me stop you for a moment. Don't think of Israel at this point as the nation of Israel. I think Jacob's talking about himself. Why? What's his new name? Israel. And he builds an altar and he calls it God, the mighty God of Israel. That is, he is God who is mighty and this mighty God is my God. And I'm serving and worshiping the mighty God. It's interesting, beloved. I gave you the, what God said back in Genesis 28 and all the promises that he made. But do you remember what Jacob said way back there in response to what God promised? Let me remind you of just two verses, Genesis 28, 20, and 21. Remember, God had told him all these wonderful things. It says back in chapter 28, Then Jacob made a vow saying, Now listen, if God will be with me and keep me in the way that I'm going and give me bread to eat and clothing to put on so that I come back to my father's house in peace, listen, then the Lord shall be my God. And what do we have here? He's back in the land of Canaan. God has blessed him. And he builds an altar and says, God, the mighty God of Israel, my God. Now this brings us back to the beginning of our discussion today. And this whole idea of waging war with our flesh. And the struggle that we have is we try to live a godly life and choose to do right, but we still mess up and still sin. And we try to walk by faith, but we fail. We try to live up to our new name, but we fail. We, we try to appropriate the blessings that arise in Christ, but we fail. We're like Jacob one moment and Israel the next. What can we do? How can we have victory in all of this? How can we have victory in our struggle with sin? How can we live more like Israel and less like Jacob? And that's a good question. And it's an important question for sure. And depending on how much time we have, we don't have any left. We could talk about several passages. We could talk about things like reckon yourself dead to sin and alive to God. We could talk about make no provision for the flesh to fulfill the lust thereof. Galatians, we already read, walk in the Spirit and you'll not fulfill the lust of the flesh. Flee youthful lust. Thy word have I hidden in my heart that I may not sin against God. And we could go on and on. But the more I thought about it, I came to realize this. That misses the point. That's not the point of the passage. You see, beloved, Genesis 33, this passage is not a celebration of Jacob's faithfulness. It's not a celebration of our faithfulness. It's a celebration of God's faithfulness. This is all about God's faithfulness. And what Genesis 33 should really cause in our life is it should cause us to praise and worship our almighty God who is faithful even when we're faithless. Who keeps us and ministers to us and cares for us when we fail, when we sin, when we're faithless, when we mess up, when we struggle, as we struggle so often with sin. And I'll be honest with you, in this struggle with our sin nature, I find great encouragement in a verse in the book of Philippians. In fact, it's very interesting in this verse, 
It emphasizes not our work, but God's work. And not our faithfulness, but God's faithfulness. Let me give it to you in the living, New Living Translation. It's there on the screen in front of you, Philippians 1.6. Notice what it says. And I am certain that God, who began the good work within you, will continue His work until it's what? Finally finished on the day when Christ Jesus returns. In other words, He won't give up on you. He won't cast you off. We're faithless at times. We like faithfulness at times. But our God is faithful and He's promised that He's going to finish His work in us. He's going to mature us. He's going to complete us. He's going to perfect us. You know, we've called this sermon series what? He's still working on me. We see it over and over in Jacob's life. And we see it in our lives as well. Let us lift our hearts in praise and worship for our faithful, mighty God who's still working on us as well. That's enough. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank You today for Your great faithfulness. We fail so often. We sin. We struggle. We scheme. We plot to have our own way. But You patiently and faithfully lead us and guide us and discipline us and grow us more and more into the image of your precious Son, the Lord Jesus. Father, we thank you that you provided a way of escape so that we never have to sin. We never have to yield to temptation. But Lord, when we fail and we do, you're there to forgive us and restore us. Help us to appropriate the blessings that are ours in Christ Jesus. Help us to walk by faith and not by sight. Help us to lean upon You and not upon the arm of flesh. Help us, Father, to be more faithful. Thank You for this precious promise that You are going to complete Your work in us. You will not fail us. You will not give up on us. You will not desert us. Though our love wanes, Yours never does. Though we lose sight of You, You never take Your eyes off of us. We praise You today and worship You. You are indeed our wonderful, powerful, mighty, covenant-keeping God. And we rest in You today. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I can't think of a more appropriate closing hymn than number 54. Great is Thy faithfulness, O God my Father. There is no shadow of turning with Thee. Thou changest not, Thy compassions they fail not. As Thou hast been, Thou forever wilt be. Great is thy faithfulness. If you don't know this God today, we'd love to introduce Him to you. We'd love to lead you to the cross and help you to understand the Gospel and receive Jesus Christ. You're welcome to come today to an invitation. But the majority of our message has been for believers and maybe you need to go to the Lord today. And He's spoken to your heart today. Maybe just come and bow and worship Him at this altar today. Whatever the need may be, the altar is open as we stand and sing 54, Great is thy faithfulness. Thank you.